You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It's a little bit unfortunate how much you have to advocate for yourself with regards to medical bills because of how confusing it is. But I think it starts with anytime you're thinking about anything related to medical care. I would break this down into three parts. So one is arm yourself with as much information as possible. Two is ask questions. And three is research all your options. Make sure you look at everything that could be done to help you solve your medical billing problem. And then understand everything you can about the bills. Don't take no for an answer and make allies, not enemies. Your life is going to change. Jobs and kids and houses. Do you think that you're financially ready to enjoy the ride? Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with an advisor today because you've got so much to look forward to, but it's always better to be prepared. Hi, everyone. I'm Jean Chatsky. Thanks so much for joining us today on Her Money. I'm not exactly sure when you'll be listening to this podcast. I know some of you take walks with us and spend time outside while you let Her Money play, and we're so thankful that you take us with you. If you're stopping by the mailbox while you're out, let me just say that I hope you find something good waiting on you, like a postcard or a wedding invitation or a thank you note, literally anything but a medical bill. We know that the majority of people in this country, 57% of Americans, have been surprised by a medical bill that they thought would have been covered by insurance. That's according to a survey from the folks at the University of Chicago. Between 2019 and 2020, per capita health care spending in the United States saw a 10% increase. That was larger than increases in Austria, France, Germany, the Netherlands, and Sweden. And annual health spending per person in this country now stands at nearly $12,000. We already knew that that was outrageous. I mean, that is outrageous. But for context, that is more than twice as much as we see in other comparable countries. We also know, and this has been true since I started covering personal finance, that medical bills are the number one cause of bankruptcies in the U.S. One study published in the American Journal of Medicine showed us that 62% of bankruptcies were caused by medical issues. And in addition to the financial hardship that medical bills bring, They are just exhausting. When you see those bills show up in the mail and you don't know exactly what they're for or how much you might be, it's terrifying to just open them. And then there's always the possibility that they show up on a Friday or a holiday weekend and you can't get anyone on the phone for three days who can help explain to you what you really owe. And what do you do when what you owe is just more than you can afford? How do you negotiate, settle for less, or get your insurance company to step in and cover more? Today, we are asking all of those questions of Brayden Pan. Brayden is the founder and CEO of Resolve. Resolve is a company that negotiates medical bills on behalf of consumers. To date, it has saved people more than $16 million. It helps the average consumer save over 60%. And more importantly, customers only pay if Resolve is successful in negotiating that bill down. Brayden, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. 
Thank you. Thank you for having me, Jean. I'm really excited. I know you have an interesting story to tell as to what inspired you to start Resolve. You were in an accident in 2015. It left you with some pretty astronomical bills. You had health insurance. It just wasn't sufficient. And I think so many of us have been there. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and your journey to starting your company? Yeah, as you mentioned, I had a healthcare incident. I had a pretty big medical bill. I was personally okay. I only had about a 15-minute visit at the hospital, but the bill that I received for that seemed massively out of whack. How big was the bill? Uh, it was only about three or $4,000, but for 15 minutes, that seems like something that's crazy to me, right? Yeah, that's insane. It is. And I didn't have experience with the healthcare system the way I do now, so I couldn't really make heads or tails of, you know, why was a 15-minute hospital visit a $3,000 bill? And so I basically spent 12 months feeling like I was bashing my face against a brick wall, trying to figure it out, trying to understand what the heck was going on, learning everything I could about the healthcare system, health insurance, and bills. I finally got it solved. But it got me thinking, there's got to be a better way. And I'm in a fortunate enough position that the bills that I had, I could have paid, and I still would have been able to pay my mortgage and put food on the table for my family. That's not the case for everybody. Either their bills are much, much larger or they're in a different situation or both. And so it got me thinking, I should build a company to do this better than what's happening right now. And I know that sounds a little bit crazy, but I've got a background um, in entrepreneurship. You know, I've actually worked for a renewable energy uh, startup company as well as an ed tech startup company. So for me, it was almost natural to just go build something to fix the problem that I saw. And when you dug into that bill, and I, I want to dig into medical bills in general, but when you dug into your bill, why was it $3,000 or $4,000 for 15 minutes? Like what had happened there? Yeah. So there's a couple of reasons on why it was so large. So the first one was anytime you go to the hospital, you get a massive charge just for showing up at the hospital, right? There's just a bill for just going to the hospital. The second big reason is I saw a specific specialist, right? It wasn't just a general practitioner doc. It was a very specific specialist. And so that was super high. And I think the third one was I didn't really have control over the prices that the hospital was charging. Those were prices that the insurance company and the hospital had pre-negotiated, and I was just paying. You know, I had no say in those prices. I had a high deductible health care plan at the time, so the insurance company, while having set prices, didn't cover any of the costs to doing so. So I still had to pay whatever the insurance company negotiated. Yeah, I think that those of us who've bothered to look at the details of healthcare bills have been surprised at the costs of just the individual pieces of those bills. I'm thinking about, so my son has a heart condition and at one point needed a valve and it was a very specialized valve. It, it was made from a part of a cow, but that valve was $30,000, just the valve, not the cost of putting the valve into his body, but the valve in and of itself. And I had back surgery last year and just the cost of the anesthesia, right, was well into five figures. I mean, so it's an issue and it's an issue that those of us who are not experts, I think, have trouble thinking about, okay, these are 
big numbers to even comprehend, let alone deal with. So I want to understand a couple of things in this podcast today. I want to understand how Resolve works, because I think there's some people who will just want to outsource this. But then I also want to understand how we can do it for ourselves, right? If we want to be the ones who fight back on our own behalf, how we can do that. So let's start with Resolve. How does it work? Absolutely. So patients come to us with large bills, we gather as much information as we can to understand the entire picture of what's going on, right? So that's the bill itself. That's the patient's insurance information. We dig into hospital costs, hospital standard prices, what Medicare will reimburse, what the average insurance company will pay for these procedures. We also understand patient financial situation and other life circumstances or outstanding debts to help us understand a full picture. And from there, we build out what we see as the best strategy for maximizing savings. Again, our goal is to lower bills as much as possible. Our priority is savings. I stress that because that's another thing when your listeners are doing this themselves, they should prioritize savings and not necessarily just being right. What do you mean by that? So as an example, you may find issues with the bill on the bill itself where you think these charges aren't right. I didn't actually have this procedure or they're charging me for too many pieces of this item, which may be good to go and get corrected, but sometimes we'll run into situations where the hospital will say, okay, we'll just give you a 70% discount. Just pay that and we're good. I made that number up, but it could be any type of number. That may be a better option for your listener than getting the bill to be corrected. And so keep in mind that the goal is to get savings, not just make everything perfect and right. Gotcha. What is the average size bill that people bring you? Well, the average size bill that we work on is about $45,000, which is huge. We have people bringing us bills as small as $100, and it, we've worked on a bill that was a million dollars before. Early on, when I founded the company, we were focused on the largest bills because we wanted to make sure we were getting big enough savings to make it worthwhile for everybody involved. As we got better and better, we started to accept smaller and smaller bills. And do you help people who both have insurance and who don't have insurance? Absolutely. So we help both sides of the coin. And you said you save people on average about 60%. What do you charge for that? Yep. So we charge either 10 or 25% of savings depending on the bill size. So we base it on the amount of savings that we find. So break that down for me so people know what they're exactly in for. Yeah, sure. So if your bill is over $15,000, we charge you 10% of savings found, right? So if you have a $30,000 bill, let's just say we wipe it off entirely, we would charge 10% of that or $3,000. If your bill is under $15,000, we charge 25% of savings found, right? So if you have a $10,000 bill and we wipe it entirely, we charge $2,500. Okay. Let's talk about the whole process. So you said you start with information. You start with your bill. You start with the insurance. You start with, I would guess, the rack rates, right, which you can find in many cases, or at least you can figure out what Medicare is going to pay for these costs. If I'm doing this as an individual, how would you tell me to set myself up for success? Yep. So gather all of that information together. And then there's generally two paths. You're either going to insurance to appeal an insurance coverage decision to get insurance to pay more for the services, or you're going to the hospital or the doctor's office to get them to accept a lower amount. And that actually broadens up to a number of other paths. But If insurance didn't cover something, they denied coverage for one reason or another, you might want to go to your insurance company first and try to write an appeal to get them to cover more of the procedure. 
if it looks like your insurance company covered what they should have or you don't have insurance, that's when you go to the hospital and get them to accept less. And so negotiating with the hospital is one of those levers to get them to accept less. You could be going through and identifying billing errors and getting those corrected. And sometimes you might even just want to go to uh, financial aid and apply for financial aid through the hospital to get them to give you a discount. And I'll point out with financial aid for your listeners that a lot of hospitals have pretty broad and generous financial aid policies. It's not uncommon for us to see a situation where a family of four with a household income of $100,000 a year will still qualify for financial aid. So that's always something you want to take a look at. How do you define financial aid in this context? Yeah, so it's a good question. So every hospital or every nonprofit hospital is required to have a financial aid policy posted online. And so you go onto that online, you download the financial aid policy, you have to read through it, that'll define all the factors that will determine whether or not you qualify. And if you think you might qualify, then it's a matter of applying through the hospital financial aid office. And from there, they'll either wipe your bill entirely or give you a significant discount. When you're looking at your bills, Mm -hmm. you know, reading the fine print and trying to figure out what's important and what's not. And sometimes medical bills seem to be, they're like a credit card statement. They're like a financial aid award letter. They're like so many other things in this financial landscape that if you don't really know how to read them, you're not exactly sure where the mistakes or the negotiable parts are lurking. So let me actually ask this in two ways. First of all, what do you pay the most attention to? And secondly, does something have to be an actual mistake in order to be negotiable? Yep. So for the first one, what we pay the most attention to is the ultimate amount that the hospital is charging the patient, right? Like the hospital bill will often have the rack rate or the charge master rate. They'll have any amount paid or any discounts given, either that's because it's a self-payer amount or because there's a pre-negotiated discount with the insurance company. And then they'll have the amount that the patient owes. Now that's the most important part, right? Like you talk about hospital bills looking like credit card statements. That's more of an itemized bill where they might like line out every single procedure they've done. And that's certainly important. You can certainly find mistakes in there. But at the end of the day, you want to know how much you owe, right? And from there, that's where we start our negotiations from. And then I apologize. I forgot what the second question was. The second question was, does it have to be a mistake to be negotiable? So absolutely not. It does not have to be a mistake to be negotiable. You can negotiate on just the amount that you owe with the hospital. So the fact of the matter is for hospitals, one, they generally collect very little from patients. They collect on average 20 cents on the dollar before patients go to collections. Hospitals don't like sending patients to collections. It's very costly to them to do so. And there's a lot of potentially bad PR to them for sending people to collections. So if you can go to the hospital and say, I will pay you up front a lump sum of 50% of what you're charging me in order to wipe the bill, they may very well accept that. That way, they don't have to continue to pay to try to collect from you. They don't risk you going to collections. They can just get the money up front. I think that one of the reasons people feel so uneasy about this is because we love our doctors. Our doctors take really good care of us. Some of us put our doctors on pedestals. We want to be able to see our doctors again, right? And we don't want our doctors like looking at us like, oh, well, this person isn't going to pay me. So what's the answer there? 
Yeah, so that's a really good question. I'll point out that the way the medical system is designed, doctors don't see the billing side, especially in hospitals. Billing and the doctor's offices are completely separated. And so you're interacting with the billing side. The doctor is obligated to help you and treat you regardless of all of that. The other thing to think about on the hospital or the doctor's office side is they want to get paid as quickly as possible. It's not great for them to have to wait 12 months to get the money from you. So if you can pay them quickly, even if it's a little bit less, they may be more happy with you because you're giving that money quickly and they don't have to wait as long. The other place that all of these things have shown up are in our credit reports. And I know that there's a new report out that came out from the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau that shows how devastating bills can be to our credit picture overall. Have you dealt with getting bills and medical debt off of people's credit reports, or do you suggest a way to do that? We do fight medical debt and negotiate it once it's gone to collections and when it's on somebody's credit reports. There's actually been a recent ruling made by the three largest credit agencies that will actually help with that. So that ruling does a few things. One, it makes it so medical debts of under $500 aren't on your credit report. Two, it makes it so there's an extended um, wait time. It's either a six or 12-month wait time, and I forget the exact number of months, before a medical debt that gets reported to a credit reporting bureau can actually show up on your credit report. And three, once you pay the medical debt, it will come off your credit report. And so if we can help a consumer pay that medical debt, that will now come off their credit report and it will no longer be a negative mark for them. We also saw something called the No Surprises Act, which is supposed to, and this went into effect in January, and it's supposed to end these sorts of surprise medical bills that we're not expecting. What's the definition of a surprise medical bill? And is this going to actually work? Yeah, so that's a very good question. I mean, from a consumer perspective, a surprise medical bill is any medical bill that they weren't expecting to receive. From my understanding of the act, the surprise medical bills are generally for bills that are for emergent care procedures. The act should stop those bills from happening. So those used to happen when you had an accident, you had to go to the ER, but you were out of network, right? So you had to go to an ER that was out of your network and you ended up getting billed a massive amount because insurance didn't cover as much as the ER was paying. And so this No Surprises Bills Act is supposed to stop that. Okay. You know, when we're talking about medical matters, we often hear this notion that you should be your own advocate. You should take back your power and you should be your own advocate. I want to talk a little bit about our sponsor, Edelman Financial Engines. But while I do that, can you just think about what are sort of best practices if you want to be your own advocate, both before you get care and after you get the bill? And while you think about that, let's just talk about the fact that life really comes at you so quickly. And there could be a wedding on the horizon. There could be a promotion around the corner. There could be a grandchild on the way. Or as we're talking about today, there could be a medical surprise, a medical expense that you are just not expecting. The question you need to be asking yourself is whether you're financially prepared for everything life has in store. With a well-crafted financial plan, it's possible to be ready. Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with a financial advisor. 
When you do this, you'll be able to work with an expert to review your current financial situation to develop a long-term strategy to help you embrace life's biggest moments as well as its surprises. You can schedule your free appointment today. I am talking with Braden Pan. He's the founder and CEO of Resolve. We're talking about all things medical bills and being your own advocate. So what does that mean to you and where does the process of being your own advocate start? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a little bit unfortunate how much you have to advocate for yourself with regards to medical bills because of how confusing it is. But I think it starts with anytime you're thinking about anything related to medical care. I would break this down into three parts. So one is arm yourself with as much information as possible. Two is ask questions. And three is research all your options. So in arming yourself with as much information as possible, make sure that you understand your insurance coverage, the details of your insurance coverage, what your deductible is, what your network is, whether or not something is in network or out of network, whether or not a procedure is covered or not covered. Make sure you ask as many questions as possible. So in understanding all this information, call your insurance company before you have a medical procedure. Say, I'm having this medical procedure with this healthcare provider. Is this covered? Call the healthcare provider as well and say, this is my insurance. Do you think this will be covered? See what they will say. Ask the questions. If you get a bill after the fact that you weren't expecting, ask why you got that. Ask for a detailed or an itemized bill. And then ask questions on anything that you don't understand about those bills. And then research all your options. Once you've understood all of this, see what else is out there to help you. Like, yes, maybe you can negotiate. Maybe you can appeal. Maybe you can file for financial aid. Maybe there are third-party agencies that will help you out and get you out of this situation. But make sure you look at everything that could be done to help you solve your medical billing problem. So you said, make sure you negotiate. Sounds simple, but it's not right? You guys do this for people every single day. Can you share your top three tips for medical bill negotiation? Can you like walk me through them step by step by step? Yeah, sure. So let's start with, I'm going to give high level and then walk through the details, right? So understand everything you can about the bills. Don't take no for an answer and make allies, not enemies. So understand everything you can about the bills. Understand how much you're getting charged. Understand whether or not you already have a discount. Try to understand what insurance would have paid, right? You can go to healthcarebluebook.com, look up all of your procedures, and see what the average insurance reimbursement rate would be for those procedures for hospitals in your area. Compare that to how much you're getting charged. So you at least have some sort of baseline for what the hospital would normally expect to get from that. Do you do that before or after you have the procedure? Well, ideally, you'd start with it before so you would know what was going to happen. But quite often, you end up doing it afterwards either because you had an emergent care procedure, so you're in the ER, you can't really do your research before you're going to the ER, or you went into a procedure and something else was done on top of what you had planned. Like It's the unfortunate reality that when a doctor cuts you open for a procedure, there may be things that they didn't know were going to happen or issues that they want to solve while they have you on the operating table. And so they may do so, you may get charged additionally for that. So ideally, yes, you want to do your research before you have that procedure, but we all understand that that's not always possible. And so it's still possible to do so after you have that procedure. Okay. And I just want to repeat that website. It's healthcarebluebook.com. It's a really important one. That's step one. All right. Step two. So now once you've got an understanding of 
what the hospital would normally get paid for this procedure, see how much you're paying. If you're paying more than that, start asking for a discount. How do you do that? What words do you use? So the best way to do it that we found is actually not to call up the billing office and make that ask, largely because it can be very difficult and nerve-wracking to do so. Most people don't like negotiating things, right? Like, honestly, the best way to do it is to write a letter, requesting a discount and explaining your position, and then call the billing office and say, I'd like to fax a settlement offer. What is the fax number for me to do so? Or what is the email for me to do so? That way you can get your request in writing, but it also depersonalizes it a little bit and it makes it easier for a lot of people to do the work and actually make the ask. So I'm listening and I'm thinking, all right, if I want to write one of these letters, really what words do I use? Let's put it into math, right? Let's say the bill is $1,000. I think that's insanity. I don't want to pay that much. How do I make a quote unquote settlement offer? What do I say in my letter? Good question, right? So first of all, you want to reference your name and the account number so they know what to look up. You explain that you're getting charged $1,000. You explain that according to Healthcare Blue Book, the average pricing here is, let's say, $500, right? You've done the research. You've done the math. We're saying it's $500. So you say, I'm getting charged $1,000 for this procedure. It looks like the average amount that a hospital gets paid is $500. I would like to pay $500 immediately in exchange for settling this bill entirely. If this is acceptable, please let me know and I will send you the money. Right, so you're making the request based on data on what costs are, and you're also offering to pay immediately in exchange for that discount. How often are they going to say yes to that? So that's a really good question. The first round, they almost always say no. Right. And so this is why I say don't take no for an answer. We get no and our team gets no all day long and they get trained to turn the no's into a yes consistently. How do you do that without paying more money? (laughs) Yep, absolutely. So that's where we go to the third item, make allies, not enemies. So if they say no, you'll have a no, a response from somebody specifically. That gives you somebody who's not just on the billing office that you can call and start talking to and explain your situation and try to make them an ally. Don't call them up and tell them how outrageous the hospital's prices are or how they're mischarging you for something. That person has no control over the prices, right? You don't want them to dig into their heels. You want them to be your ally in actually getting you this discount. So call them up, explain the situation, ask what would work for them to settle the account. If you were to pay an upfront amount, what would they be okay with accepting as a discount in order to get everything wiped out? And start building a relationship with them. Their problem, what they want to do is collect as much as they can from patients. You're offering a way for them to do so quickly and efficiently, even if they're not getting the entire amount that they're billing you. So I know how to negotiate for a car, right? You know, you go in with the MSRP. I mean, these days it's different because car prices are insane, but (laughs) do I budge? Or when I offer 500 because I did my research and they are trying to charge me 1,000, If I budge, am I negotiating against myself? Like, what's the logic there? So part of it is what that person can offer as a discount. Part of it's what they're comfortable with offering as a discount. Part of that is you do want to get to a solution that works for everybody. I mean, when you're negotiating a car, normally you'll end up throwing an offer that's a little bit lower than you can afford and being willing to move up to something that's reasonable. Right. And so this is generally the same logic and people view that the same way. It also shows the person on the other end who you're trying to make an ally that you're willing to be reasonable. You're willing to help understand their needs and meet their needs if they're willing to help understand your needs. 
But if I read that the average hospital is paying 500 for this $1,000 procedure that I've been charged for, should I go in at 400 to end up at 600 Because in my mind, if I'm thinking if I'm going in at 500 I'm going to end up at 750 Potentially. It depends on the other end. That could very well be a way to go about doing that, is to go in and take a 20% discount off what the average insurance company pays for these procedures in that area. So you start at a slightly lower amount and then move up. What we advocate, why we say use Healthcare Blue Book in the first place is so that you have a reference point. So you're not just shooting in the dark on what healthcare prices are, because we all know they're insane. It can be shocking how insane they are, and different hospitals will have different levels of insanity. How many times back and forth does it take your people to get to a yes, typically? I just want people to know what they're in for in terms of don't give up. Yeah. So we've gotten really good at getting it to one to two times because we're very focused on figuring out what that person on the other end of the line's needs are and what they're looking for and so that we can shoot an offer that works for them. But we have had instances where it's four or five, six times where we're just back and forth working through this before we finally get to an answer that works for all parties. Besides wanting to get paid as much as possible now, what are the other buttons that you've figured out that you can push when negotiating? So one of the other buttons is to have the hospital consider it financial aid, right? So even if you don't qualify for financial aid, sometimes the hospital will say, okay, we will use the financial aid office to give you a discount in exchange for you paying us immediately right there. That often works when you have a really, really big bill and some sort of financial situation that could make it very hard for you to pay that bill. If you have a $30,000 bill, you're saving for your kid's college fund and your retirement, and you have a mortgage, you may not qualify for financial aid, but you may be able to use the financial aid office for the hospital to justify a discount. Fascinating. Yeah. So there are almost nuclear options that we've used. I call it like sort of escalating that we've used if a hospital absolutely refuses to budge and we think they're being unreasonable, which could be going to the press, right? And talking to the press about it. We've also had success with hospitals that are unreasonable, writing a letter, just explaining our position, justifying our position, and CCing the state attorney general's office on it or your senator's office on that to get them involved and get them pushing to help be your advocate as well. I would not recommend that as the starting point. That's only if you can't get anywhere. Like allies, not enemies, I think is a key part of this. Try to make allies in the hospital first before you make enemies. And what if you have a bill that you just can't pay? Yeah, that can be part of your negotiation is, look, here is my situation. I simply cannot afford to pay this. There's no way I'm going to be able to get there. You're going to essentially bankrupt me by doing so to try to get them to go down. You can use financial aid to help if you simply cannot pay your medical bills. You could ignore it. I don't want to say I would recommend ignoring this because the hospital can hurt your credit and they could file lawsuits against you for non-payment. But that is always an option if you'd like to go down that route. Okay. And if you don't want to go down any of these routes yourself, how do we get you and your folks to help us? Yep. Yeah, so our website is resolvemedicalbills.com. 
From there, you can either fill out a form on the website or call us directly. We've got teams of people who will sit down with you and have a free consultation to understand exactly what your situation is and understand the path forward, see whether or not it fits and put it in front of you. The other thing I'll point out about our website that I don't think I mentioned, but we have a 40-page guide to understanding and negotiating your medical bills. So I know I talked about a lot here, and I feel like I only just touched the surface of what can be done, go to the website, download that free guide, and you can use that as much as you want to help figure out and fight your medical bills if you need to. We will link to that in the show notes. Braden, it's been incredibly educational, a little depressing, but very, very educational. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. And hopefully we can help as many people as possible deal with this. That is absolutely true. And we'll be right back with Catherine and your mailbag. But before we do that, let me just remind everybody, her money is supported by BCU. BCU is a credit union. It's a great credit union that helps its members feel confident and assured with the peace of mind that comes from making really smart financial decisions. If you're interested in learning more, visit bcu.org and you'll learn about ways to secure your financial future. Catherine Tuggle from Her Money joins me now. Hey, Catherine. Hey, Jean. So I have to say that all I could think about during this show was the $12,000 bill that I got right before a holiday weekend. And long story short, it ended up being nothing. The the charge was literally zero. The charge was literally zero, but it was like this testing company that I think Their whole stock and trade was like making people think that you got this better deal with this code that your doctor would give you. And, but it was, you know, it was three days of basically terror for me being like, what did I sign up for? I had a thyroid condition and autoimmune stuff. As I'm sure you know, like these things are really hard to diagnose. And sometimes they put you through this whole battery of weird tests. And so I did this battery of weird tests. And anyway, it was the emotional anxiety that medical bills give people. Like, I feel like we should do a whole separate show on the stress of medical bills. Now that we've talked about (laughs) how to pay them and negotiate them, now we need to talk about the gut-wrenching anxiety that comes from them. Yeah. And I also think just knowing that insurers often will say no the first time around. They'll send it back to you. They'll just say no the first time around. I mean, we have this crazy system in this country where people and insurance companies sometimes feel if they say no, then you'll just pay it, even when it's not right. We went through this back and forth. Elliot got a pair of orthotics for his sneakers, right? He plays tennis, he wears orthotics, and there was a date by which you could get another pair of orthotics, like a calendar. It was specified to be a year, but it wasn't specified if it was a calendar year or if it was a year from the time that you last got them. I forget, but he decided that he was right. The insurance company, the first four times said, we are not paying for this. And he just persisted, right? And went back to them and said, no, this is the language in the policy. You should pay for this. No, this is the language in the policy. You should pay for this. And eventually they paid for it. Now, I don't know if he wore them down. I don't know if they finally decided that they agreed with him. But sometimes that advice not to give up is the best advice. And 
it's really hard because we're all busy, busy people who are far too stressed. And you're right, other than a letter from the IRS, right? The mail that I like to open least is mail relating to medical bills. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And you know that point about persistence and the squeaky wheel It's so true of so many things in our lives, you know, following up with a recruiter if you're looking for a new job or staying in behind your investments to make sure that you've got the right asset allocation if you don't get the right answer the first time. It's tough because of the time that it takes and the mental energy and the mental space that it occupies in our brains. But we know that the only way to get things done a lot of times is to stay in behind this in a way that does take your time, but there is a reward at the end of it, right? There is a light at the end of the tunnel typically. Yeah, exactly. So stick with it. And hopefully these strategies that Braden laid out will prove helpful. I mean, this is one of those shows that I just think this is information that everybody should have in their back pocket or be able to refer to. And I'm certainly going to download that 40-page guide that he recommended It's nice when a company will share its secrets for free, right? I love that. I love that so much. We've got other questions from our listeners, so let's dig in. Yeah, our first question today comes to us from Katie. She writes, Hi, Jean. I have a firm grasp on my monthly budget, which includes automatically sending 40% of my take-home pay straight to my Roth IRA, my high-yield emergency fund account, additional long-term goal investment accounts, and a small stock portfolio too. I've already shaved each spending category wherever I can. Now, I feel like the only thing left to do to grow my savings is to actually make more money. And while I apply for roles that I'm qualified for to earn more, nothing's worked out yet. I have had a few interviews for some that would let me make a lot more, close to double what I make now. When I'm looking for a new job, there's only so much that's in your control. So while I'm trying to help that along, I feel like there's nothing else I can really do to optimize my money, but it feels weird not to take some kind of action. I just listened to your episode, Stop, when doing less is the right money move, but it is still so hard for me to sit still. What should you do when you feel like you've already done every money optimization tactic you can given your current income and living situation? Thank you. So a couple of thoughts right now, Katie, and this is a great question, and it actually gives me a chance to talk about something that I've been wanting to talk about for a while. But the first thought is, you know, we only have limited energy in the day. So I would take that, which is what in Yiddish is the word for not being able to sit still. I would take that spilkes and I would just funnel it into the job search and really focus on that knowing that you have done everything that you are able to do on the other side of the equation. But I also wanna ask you about your goals and the amount of money that you're putting away toward those goals because Saving 40% is a lot. And this is what I've been waiting to talk about. So I had a conversation recently with a, a young couple in my life who are trying to buy a house. And they're good earners. They probably bring in together close to about $200,000 a year, right? So they're really good earners. And they're, they're great savers. And we sat down to look at what they could 
afford to spend on a house. And the amount that they had picked out for their monthly mortgage payment was close to about $3,500 a month, which was including insurance and taxes, much smaller than I thought they could actually afford. And I said, well, how did you land on that number? And the first thing they said was, well, we max out our 401ks and we make Roth IRA contributions. These are folks who are in their early 30s. And when I look at the amount of money that they've actually stashed away toward their retirement, They are so far above the benchmarks that we talk about on this show, where you aim to have one times your income put away by age 30 and three times at 40 and six times at 50 and eight times at 60 and 10 times by the time you retire. They were so far beyond that. I just wanted to strangle myself. And the reason I wanted to strangle myself was because I know somewhere along the line, they heard somebody like me say, well, you have to max out your 401k and you should really make a Roth contribution as well. And they took it so literally that they were just saving so much that they couldn't really achieve this dream that they could well afford of buying the house that they wanted. And I felt really bad about that, actually, because when I say, grab all those matching dollars that are on the table from your employer, it's because I want you to grab that free money. And when I say, try to max out your 401k, I mean it, but I also mean it within the scope of your other goals and within the challenge of trying to save enough for retirement while also doing the other things on your list, like potentially buying a house. And so what I want you to do is look at this 40% and think about why it's so high and why you're pushing yourself so hard to save so much. And if there are good reasons for it, then great, keep going. But if you're doing it just because you heard somebody like me focusing you on rules of thumb, maybe those rules of thumb need to be tweaked a little bit for you. Does that make sense, Catherine? Yeah, it totally does. It's like personal finance is not a monolith. Like everybody's situation is going to be different. Everybody's going to need to push and pull in different directions, depending on your age, depending on your income, but you're saving so much money. And it's great if you're saving so much money and you're still able to have the life that you want to have. But if you're not living the life that you want, maybe you adjust a little bit and give yourself a little more flexibility to do some of the other things that you want to do. Yeah. Including looking for another job, but not limited to that. Right. Totally agree. Thank you so much, Jean. Our last question today comes to us from a member of the Her Money Council. She writes, my main question is about rebalancing your portfolio. It feels intimidating to do it in a volatile market, but should I be doing it anyway? Based on my schedule, I should have done it at the end of 2021, but I've been feeling anxious about making changes right now, despite knowing how important this is. 
Should I just choose a day, do the math, and start the trades on that day, or is there a better option? Thank you so much. This is a wonderful question, too. And the whole idea of rebalancing your portfolio, and let me just sort of point this out, rebalancing portfolio is basically what we call fixing your investment mix. So when you set out to build a portfolio, you should have selected a mix of investments, stocks versus bonds, or more conservative versus more aggressive investments that make sense for your age and your risk tolerance and your distance from your goals. When we ask you to rebalance your portfolio, we're basically saying bring that mix back into line, which means, you know, those stocks that have done so, so well over the past year, we want you to sell some of those winners and we want you to put the money back into those categories that have been losers. That's hard. That is really hard for human beings who like to win to wrap our brains around. But the reason that we do it is that markets tend to be cyclical. And eventually those winners will not be winners anymore. And those categories that have underperformed will start to perform better. And over time, this is a philosophy of investing, a method of investing that has been proven to work. If you can't do it, I mean, and I would suggest, yeah, you get on a calendar schedule where you're going to do it once or twice a year, do it on your birthday, do it on the 4th of July, figure out what dates and just set it and forget it. If you can't get yourself to do that, this is what target date funds are for because target date funds will keep you in balance. They'll do this fixing of the mix with your eventual retirement date for you all along the way. And that's why when you put your money into a target date fund, you shouldn't try to fight the tide by only putting some of it in a target date fund, but putting the rest of it into a portfolio that you've selected yourself. So I'd say just pick one method or the other and go from there. And if you're looking to learn more about investing, we have opened up the doors on our new Investing Fix program. Karen Feinerman and I are teaching investing, and we're doing it in an interactive way where you, as a member of our Investing Fix club, our Investing Fix group, our Investing Fix community, you build the portfolio right along with us. And so if you're looking for more information on that, we'll put that in the show notes too, but it's investingfixfixx.com. And thanks for the great question. Yeah, thanks so much. And thank you, Jean. Of course. In today's Thrive, how to save money while using grocery delivery apps. During the pandemic, we relied a lot on grocery delivery services. I know I did. And having everything brought right to the doorstep was not only a time saver, it was a means of staying safe from COVID. Well, fast forward to this spring, and we now have this new concern when shopping for food, inflation. Prices for groceries are up by an average of 10% from where they were in 2021, and that is just an average Meat and poultry and fish are up by 14% as are flour and baking mixes. 
And so we're looking to save wherever we can, which means that paying an additional fee for grocery delivery doesn't look quite as attractive anymore. At hermoney.com, we've got a bunch of solutions for this, but I wanted to tee up just a few of them now. First, check for new member discounts. Grocery apps are like meal delivery apps in that they'll often try to draw new members in with some sort of one-time discount for your first order. So if there is a service you've been meaning to try, then this is a good way to shave a little bit off the price. Just remember, if you don't plan on using the service again, you better cancel before you forget to do that. Next, look into referrals and subscriptions. If you've been using a grocery delivery service for a while, Chances are you've noticed a tab in the app for your referral code. When a family member or a friend signs up for that service using your code, you both stand to earn credits, usually around $20 worth. And since everybody is looking for ways to save right now, don't be shy about sending your code to somebody that you know who loves a bargain. Also, Pay attention to how many times a year you're ordering from your favorite services. Some of them charge a one-time fee that'll give you free delivery on all orders. That might not make sense if you're only ordering once or twice, but if you're doing it on the regular, then just do the math and see if you stand to save with a membership. Finally, opt into communications from your favorite services. Do you really need more notifications in your life? Well, Probably not, but many grocery delivery companies, including discount organic retailer Thrive, offer flash sales on certain products and they'll text you or email you when those sales are going on. Also, when you opt into these sorts of communications, you'll get notified about special offers and promo codes and discounts that the general public won't find out about at all. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Braden Pan for getting candid about navigating the healthcare system. I hope that you're feeling more empowered when it comes to combing through those bills. If you like what you hear, I hope that you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll talk soon.